aesthetic value makes the world worthwhile. It's only really by means of aesthetic value that we are able to see the world as a good place. Hello, I'm Bridget Haynes, and I'm the editorial director of Eon and Psyche magazines and the Sophia Club. Today I want to transport you to an evening early in June. It's winter in Melbourne and we're gathered at the candlelit Eon studio for a Sophia Club event on beauty and the good life. We are here to do some live philosophy. So what is live philosophy? At the Sophia Club we believe that everyone has a stake in philosophy. We believe that philosophy becomes most energised and vital when we come together in conversation. And we believe that philosophy isn't just a matter of propositions and analysis, although these are very important. It's also a matter of feeling and emotion and poetry. Our live philosophy events bring together conversation and the arts to explore the big ideas that matter to you. Join us as a listener as we take a journey into the world of beauty. This Sophia Club Melbourne event was produced and took place on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Woiwurrung language group of the Kulin Nation. The Sophia Club respectfully acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land on which we gather for our Melbourne events. We extend our deep respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities in Australia and to all First Nations people around the world. I was lucky enough to grow up in a household filled with a sense of beauty and the arts. The rooms in my childhood home were warmed with jazz and classical music, from Haydn and Mozart to Bessie Smith, Billie Holiday and other blues luminaries. All to say that the appreciation of music and other aesthetic values has been deeply important in my own life. In this Sophia Club event, I had the pleasure of exploring the idea of beauty and the good life with two very special guests. Tom Cochran, a philosopher of music and emotions, aesthetics and cognition, and Lior, a multi-award-winning singer-songwriter whose work has been driven by a deep connection with beauty and a great curiosity about culture and feeling. We began our exploration of the theme by surrendering ourselves to beauty with Lior's opening song, If the Wind Will Catch My Name. Well, they're cutting back the roses down to the thorny spine And I'm wondering if this winter is gonna be kind mm, After the morning rush, there's a stillness of time in the garden where the gravel trails serpentines I came here looking for the words to scale the walls of my mind Kids are playing hopscotch coloring the dusty gray Before the rain comes down and washes the chalk away 
There are so many ways we could evoke the experience of beauty. We could talk about landscape, we could talk about natural things, we could talk about paintings, we could talk about art. We could indeed talk about beautiful people. But I thought that I might start with some words from a particularly favourite writer of mine, Junichiro Tanizaki, uh, from his book In Praise of Shadows. And partly this is just an excuse to share a little Tanizaki with you, but... It is, I think, also evocative of the kind of atmosphere of these evenings to me, of conversation and, and of light in the shadows. And he's talking here about the experience of the deep, shadowy darkness of the Japanese temple. And he says, And surely you have seen in the darkness of the innermost rooms of these huge buildings to which sunlight never penetrates, how the gold leaf of a sliding door or screen will pick up a distant glimmer from the garden, then suddenly send forth an ethereal glow, a faint golden light cast into the enveloping darkness, like the glow upon the horizon at sunset. In no other setting is gold quite so exquisitely beautiful. You walk past, turning to look again, and yet again, and as you move away, the golden surface of the paper glows ever more deeply, changing not in a flash, but growing slowly, steadily brighter, like colour rising in the face of a giant. Or again, you may find that the gold dust of the background, which until that moment had only a dull, sleepy luster, will, as you move past, suddenly gleam forth as if it had burst into flame. And I think 
the thing that I love so much about that passage is that, to me, it speaks of that incandescent quality of beauty that, that takes us by surprise, that, that arrests us, uh, and that might just shine forth in, in the darkness like that. So we see here that beauty and pleasure seem to be tightly connected as well. So, Tom, thinking about beauty, how would you come to this concept of beauty? How do we distinguish that from other kinds of pleasurable experiences? So, what you just presented was an incredibly intense, sensual experience where the imagination has been enlivened suddenly by this vision of the gold. And I had the same kind of feeling when uh, Lior was singing as well, this kind of very kind of rich, intense sensuality. But that's not where I start with beauty. I know that when people think of beauty, they think of the kind of lushness and the kind of sheer sensuality. But in order to, to start making sense of it, we have to kind of narrow our focus to some extent. So the, the account of beauty has to be distinguished from our account of the whole world of aesthetic value. I mean, the, the stimuli that you've presented are hitting on so many different kinds of aesthetic value, all these kind of different sensual, emotional, dramatic uh, qualities. So for me, beauty starts with the form of something, with the idea that there's an object, that it has many parts, and these parts relate to each other. And that's an extremely abstract concept, but one that you can apply to the arrangement of objects on a table, to the branches of a tree, to a mathematical equation, to a person's character. Every part of it fits together and comes with this perfect sense of lucidity and clarity. So if we were to think then there are machines that all fit together and function extremely well, but we don't find them beautiful. Perhaps we see a horse galloping in a field and we think there's a beauty to the way that horse is all put together. It functions in this elegant, seamless fashion. We see a train and I don't look out of my office window and think, my goodness, look at that train going by, that's a beautiful thing. What is the difference between a beautiful thing that is all pieces holding together and the one that we think that's functional, that's a functional machine? I have an opposing approach. For me, yeah, that machine is absolutely beautiful. The, the way that that thing functionally fits together, it's, it's the kind of paradigm of clarity. Mm -hmm. A horse galloping is going to give me a sense of power and majesty. And that's going to impress me on a more directly sensual level. At least there's this long tradition in philosophy that said, stick to the structure, first of all. Mm -hmm. Try to grasp the... There's this quality of understanding that you catch. The way a person's face is arranged, the way the petals of a flower are arranged, you know, the branches of a tree, the cloudscape in the sky. These all have a quality where you're able to say, this makes sense to me. So th there's something kind of mysterious about the horse galloping that I'm like, OK, that's going to be something I'll have to deal with a bit later. <laughs> uh, Let's just start with really simple stuff, you know, the functional beauty. That's, that's often one of the things that philosophers feel like they can understand, they can uh, describe quite clearly. The way you're talking does remind me of what some of those classical senses of beauty that we might find in architecture in Vitruvius yeah. and so on, which yeah. are very interested in the notion of harmony, yes. 
form symmetry. Is that closely connected to the way that you're talking about beauty here? Yes, very much. I mean, perhaps one of the most traditional notions of beauty is the notion of uh, unity and complexity. And that's something you see in the Western tradition. It's also something you see in the Eastern tradition on the arts. This ideal that we're seeking in which these two these two aspects, uh, unity and complexity, are merged and perfectly balanced such that everything harmonizes. So you can have it in a kind of static image form, you can have it in an architectural form, but you can also have it in a musical form uh, where you, know, you get symmetri- symmetries of phrases and uh, rhyming schemes and, and so on. And in your view, is that if you think of beauty in those terms, that sense of harmony and function and symmetry, is that something that you think we've evolved to appreciate? Where does, where does that come from in our sort of history as a species? Yeah, tricky question. I think it is necessary that we try to connect our sense of beauty with our practical, evolutionarily kind of justified drives. Often one of the classic stories we get, in, and you might see this in, in psychology and in philosophy, is that Early human looked at the savannah plains and they saw a tree here and a tree there and maybe there's a gazelle. Anyway, anyway, ah yes, this will be a good environment in which to live. And so the idea was that the sense of beauty attracted humans to certain environments, right, that look receptive to their aims, that look survivable and even comfortable in various respects. So, you know, that, that's a story, but um, I don't think it applies very well to lots of things we'd like to call beautiful. It doesn't apply very well to you know, sheer patterns, or, you know, the lapping of water on the shore, or many, many kinds of artworks. Although I've been interested in that idea of how do we kind of link our sense of beauty with our more kind of emotional, practical uh, drives, I think that the connection has to be, not that it's receptive to my kind of survival or my kind of living aims, but it's receptive to my understanding. This thing looks knowable. It looks like it's accessible to my capacity to make sense of it. That's an extremely general idea that you can apply across all sorts of stimuli, both concrete objects and abstract things, um, and people and uh, anything really. The evolutionary rationale, if you like, is that humans are very curious, knowledge-hungry creatures, and it's absolutely essential to our survival aims and our flourishing aims that we are able to understand the things around us. It's this, you know, sine qua non of um, making our way in the world. And so it makes a lot of sense that things that seem receptive to our understanding, things that look knowable, are going to be ones that we're very attracted towards. And is that something to do with that sort of magic combination of complexity and simplicity or right. order in complexity so, that you've mentioned? So the, the way I like to put it is that a beautiful object is like a cognitive bargain. It gives you the opportunity to know lots of things very efficiently. So that there's a cost to trying to understand something where you know, there's lots of different things you have to make sense of and all the different parts. But if all those parts uh, symmetrically relate to each other, then, oh, you, you have the sense, I'm going to be able to grasp all these things. The efforts that I put in to understand it are going to be well rewarded with knowledge. So. There's a cost there, the cost of trying to understand, but there's also a benefit of you've successfully managed to understand. And so there's probably some kind of subconscious calculation that we do where we go, this thing looks like the kind of thing that's worth exploring. 
I'd like to um, take us back a little bit in the philosophical tradition to the, the Socratic understanding of beauty. And I have to, um, if we think about the symposium, there are lovely passages in there where Socrates talks about Diotima, the priestess, who's his teacher. And she talks about this rather mysterious and arresting idea that part of human creativity is to give birth in beauty. And this notion of beauty, it seems to be very much tied up with a kind of sense of love or longing, something we're drawn towards. How does that, does that something that, that connects to this understanding of beauty that you're sharing with us tonight? There's opposing camps on the philosophy of beauty. And this camp that associates beauty with love is particularly these days associated with the philosopher um, Alexander Nehemas. He has this book called uh, Only a Promise of Happiness. And basically he says that to find something beautiful is to love it, effectively. It's for it to stimulate your desire, for you to want it to be part of your life and for it to sustain your well-being. I think he has this lovely phrase, doesn't he? He talks about beauty as a way things invite us in. Right. So on, on that point, I'm in alignment with Nermas. Mm -hmm. Although there is an important connection between beauty and love, there's not a necessary connection. If you're going to love something, you want you want to be attached to it, you want it to be part of your life, and you, know, you, you want it to reciprocate your love, if at all possible. But I think it's quite possible for us to find something beautiful, and it's gone the next second. It could be entirely transient. You're walking through a railway station, a busy crowd, and you, for a second you're struck by the dance-like movements, and then it's gone. Mm. It can just be the passing scene. So... For me, beauty can be entirely transient. It can be something that I don't have to love. Mm. But it can also be the invitation yeah, to, to find out more. I mean, Nehemiah has the unfortunate consequence of his view is that you only love something when it's mysterious. And the more you find out about it, the less you're going to love it until you get to a point where you just use it up and it's cast aside. <laughs> and... Um, that, for me, that's an unfortunate theoretical consequence. That, yes, it's a, it's a pretty narrow base of love, isn't it? That yes. love is going to be exhausted in this fashion by knowledge. Whereas on my view, I think that can still remain absolutely mm. uh, constant. Well, let's take a break from the conversation and invite Lior back with us. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Uh, is been a bit of talk about transience, so um, which is a nice segue to this next song. Some years ago I uh, went to my place of birth, uh, to Israel, and uh, did some travelling around in that area, in Israel and in Jordan, and uh, through a turn of events I was lucky enough to spend some time with some Bedouin people, the uh, nomadic wanderers of the Negev Desert, and I uh, was pretty taken by their transient way of life, and... Upon return, I felt compelled to try and capture that experience in a song, and uh, it culminated in this, uh, which is uh, almost like a desert hymn. It's called Bedouin Song.
sadness, a black desert rain that lets you rise up and flourish once again. Heading Bursting into a calm sea Like a river release And the cool night will flow Into the heat of the day I will lose its shadow I will find my own way song is all I really own Ooh, how strong the temptation to fall While black desert You can see just why it's so special to come together in these nights of uh, conversation and music. Thank you. Uh, we're going to move now a little bit beyond the notion of beauty to some wider aesthetic values and how they might relate to our sense of the well-lived life. And I, I actually love this passage in your book, Tom. You say, we exist in a universe that is not just beautiful but also tragic and funny and dramatic and sublime as well as uncanny, cool, cute, erotic, horrific and kitsch in parts. So when we think about living a life that is attuned to aesthetic values and experiences, we really need to go beyond beauty, right? So let's start with the sublime. Um, it's a term we use really loosely, I think, isn't it? When you hear people say, oh, that was a sublime, you know. But actually the sublime, is, like beauty, is something very particular and kind of quite strange. So let's talk a little bit about what the sublime is. Yes, there are rules about the sublime. <laughs> Even. Um, I mean, as a, as a concept, it has a very long history that goes back to 
the third century AD or so. But the, the kind of core idea of the sublime is that it's an experience of uh, fear and attraction simultaneously, or perhaps just kind of fluctuating between these two things. So the paradigm examples of the sublime are things like storms, volcanoes, glaciers, deserts, all these things that are generally extremely hostile to our aims. Some of the first descriptions of the sublime are from these 18th century gentlemen crossing the Alps and terrified of this uh, experience, but nevertheless like overwhelmed by the awesome majesty of these mountains. Mm. They right. talked there about uh, this is term an agreeable horror, right? Exactly. Uh, an enthusiastic terror. These are the sort of terms that right. Ad- so, you know, they're using. struggling for these words to say, well, how how these things could be possibly uh, combined. So there's yeah, there's kind of essential duality to the sublime experience, and this constant threat of annihilation. That if you were to move closer to that volcano, if you were to get closer to that uh, mountain you could be destroyed by it. So what I find really profound about the sublime is that there are these things that are absolutely hostile to us, that make us feel completely insignificant, that just reveal the vast indifference of the universe to our aims. And yet we're nevertheless able to go, yeah, that's pretty good, I like that. That's something I can embrace. That, for me, shows an amazing capacity of the human mind to be able to transcend its kind of immediate bodily comforts and reach out for a much larger sense of meaning or you know, wonder in the, in the universe. Mm. I think that's something very, uh, very special and really needs to be uh, held on to and said, yeah, this is something we can do uh, and something that perhaps contributes to our resilience as individuals and as a culture as well. Let's talk a little bit more about this idea of fear and I think this is why we think carefully about these definitions as a sort of philosophical project because if we start to use terms like the sublime just to mean that was terrific, that was great, that was a nice meal out, we kind of lose the specificity of this very particular experience that you're talking about. Why do you think fear is playing a role there? Why is that arousing our, 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 ourselves bodily? Is it emotional? Yeah. What's going on when we feel that sense of fear? Uh, when Edmund Burke talked about the sublime, he said, well, fear kind of arouses our most kind of like extreme passions. And so he thinks that's what makes it particularly receptive to a very intense kind of aesthetic experience. So we're sort of almost broken open a little bit by this yeah. fear. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I do want to say, though, that it's not just fear in right. the sublime. There's also this other version when you, you know, when you look at the starry sky, I don't think it's fear that you feel so much as total diminishment, as if you are just vanished, as if you know, your life and all your temporary concerns are just nothing compared mm-hmm. to this vast universe. I, think, I like the, the, yeah, the claim that you're kind of broken down by it, and then you have to recover mm-hmm. uh, somehow. And I think that moment is when we start to just empathize, if I might use that term, with the sublime thing. And you start to concentrate, well, what is that mountain like exactly? What is that storm like? And you start to get an absorption into its qualities and start to feel its kind of intense um, power. And that feels good. Like, even (laughs) if you're not particularly powerful yourself, you can still nevertheless appreciate that thing has this grand, powerful capacities. We just like to think about it and to experience it, Mm. even if it's quite indirect. 
they depend upon one another for this yes. experience to really work. So every aesthetic value involves a tension of some kind. In the case of beauty, it was this kind of tension between complexity and unity. In the case of the sublime, it's this tension between empathising or identifying with the thing, kind of enjoying its power, but also being threatened by it. And the intensity of these aesthetic values are because these, these things are held in tension for us. There's a challenge that you have to kind of meet in order to get the reward and you can see that in all, all the different aesthetic values. You see it in, in, in drama, you see it in comedy, you see it in The Uncanny and all these other ones too. Mm. Is the sublime always about the natural world? Is it always an encounter with a force that is a natural or cosmic force beyond our human uh, no. experience? People also classically refer to the pyramids as being a stimuli for the sublime. Uh, sometimes people have related it to certain historical figures such as you know, Napoleon or people who could arouse kind of like mass kind of emotion in a, in a crowd. Well, uh, so sounds like we're getting to a little bit of a dark side of the sublime yes, now. Yeah, it, yeah. it does get, start to get a little bit mm. um, dark at that point, but that's the nature of the sublime, that it's bringing forth some of the kind of more dangerous states of kind of fanatical sense. You're arousing. Um, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Uh, that can be aroused. Yeah, power worship, mm. effectively. Mm. Mm. So, but, you know, also artworks, so, you know, Rothko classically is, uh, well, not classically, but recognises, you know, a sublime artist that's giving you that sense of kind of raw uh, intensity, or the music of Mahler, or in 20th century, like Ligeti. Mm. These people are like, these massive, massive forces that they're able to express, very much fitting into that kind of atmosphere. Let's talk about another aesthetic value that you're interested in, and that's the dramatic, which I think is probably a little less familiar. I mean, well, for me, with being dramatic and having dramatic experiences. But the notion that the dramatic is an aesthetic value, I think, is quite sure. an unusual and surprising one. So I wonder if you could explain a little bit to us what you mean by that. The dramatic is the excitement, essentially, that we get when agency is stretched. Although drama is something we see in all kinds of art forms, particularly narrative art forms, the roots of that drama are all the kind of ordinary experiences of life where our agency is stretched. So, you know, growing up and falling in love and falling out of love and struggling for our goals and competing against others and being in conflict, all these are the sources of the dramatic value. The question is, why is that good? Why, well, why on earth Why you, are we hooked on it? Why do like we love that? it? Yeah. Often it's deeply unpleasant and very stressful mm. to experience that kind of drama. Mm. You'd want to avoid it. And the very, very simple answer is that it would be boring if we didn't have drama. Mm. We, we would rather have uh, calm with interspersed moments of like pain than just calm. That, at least that recovery from the suffering gives us a sense, oh, I feel like I've lived, I feel like I've actually been through the meal of things and come out the other side. Particularly when we reflect on our own lives and what was good about our own lives, often we're going to tell stories that emphasise its dramatic qualities, that I struggled and then I failed, and then I struggled again and maybe then I, I did okay. Those are the things you're going to pay attention to and those are the things that you feel like give a shape to your life and make it worth, worth living in some ways. So this, this idea of giving shape, I think, is really interesting. And one of the ways in which we most often experiencing the dramatic, as you say, perhaps it's rather unpleasant to experience it in the moment. But of course, we can experience it in the arts, can't we? We can experience sure. it being absorbed in a work of fiction. We can experience it uh, watching a film. But I think one of the interesting arguments that you make too is that we can experience this very directly in music. So perhaps you could tell sure. us a bit about that. Any kind of narrative art form will take you through a journey of 
peaks and valleys. And music is particularly good at doing this. It's purer to talk about music without words. The way that it will build a sense of tension and then release that tension, that's very much the kind of dramatic progress. So I was actually struck by that while I was listening to uh, Lior's first song. He had a rhyme scheme where there was a bird rising from flame. And then you were waiting for that rhyme, oh, and the wind's going to carry, carry off my name, right? Something like that. And you were, just, you were waiting for it to come. And then he, he said, no, no, I'm not going to actually give it to you right now. I'm going <laughs> to repeat the, the first part of the phrase first for a second. And then, it, and then I realized, oh, right, it's going to come, though. It's, it's, it's definitely going to happen. Um, and I felt this kind of intense pleasure as the, kind of pr- the moment of tension was, uh, was uh, aroused and then released so that that movement of tension and release, that's very much the, the dramatic method. It's not just the sheer kind of like expectation and then satisfaction. It's also the, the direct resemblance that music is able to achieve with the way emotions feel. And so you, you see it very clearly in, in music. It's totally obvious in Lior's thing how the emotional qualities were right there. Like the way that emotions feel was right there in the sound of the music, in the sound of his voice, in the sound of the strings of the guitar, in, in the way that the harmonies moved, it was a sheer resemblance between the way that the music sounds and the way that emotions feel. Now I want to talk a little bit about some of those more difficult aesthetic experiences and how we might make sense of them. It's easy, in a sense, I think, for us to value beauty. I mean, that's a, that's a value that we could share quite readily. We might find it puzzling or paradoxical. But why is it that some aesthetic experiences that we have actually seem to be intermingled with unpleasantness or pain, with suffering. And what is it about the arts in particular that help us to make sense of those sorts of experiences? So perhaps we can start with another value that you talk about in in the the book, Tom, which is the, the notion of the tragic and what the meaning of the tragic is. How would you describe this value or experience? The obvious aspect of the tragic is that you are presenting uh, human suffering and usually suffering to someone who doesn't deserve it. Someone who you would admire, who you regard as having all kinds of virtues, brought down low by misfortune. Philosophers have always been very interested in this because the tragic seems like something that's very important for us to acknowledge and to reconcile ourselves with. So of all the arts, tragic art has often been the one that philosophers have respected the most, you might say, or they feel like, oh yes, this is, this is serious, this is proper art. Nietzsche was very interested in the, the, the tragic, wasn't he? He had, had this sure. notion that it brought together the Dionysian, the kind right. of wild energies of Dionysus with the Apollonian, the sense of order and yeah. the, the restitution of order and so on. Do you think there's anything in that sort of Nietzschean picture of tragedy, that doubled nature that it has? Um, I do recognise that Nietzsche was talking about something real when he's talking about, yeah, the kind of ecstasy of suffering. Um, but I don't think it's the account that I prefer when I talk about what's the core positive value that these things managed to achieve. We have a very basic drive to connect to other humans and indeed to other animals. And this drive is what tragic artworks are particularly good at calling forth. We just feel attracted towards people and we want to follow their ups and downs. We want them to do well. And so 
tragic works are very good, particularly by using suffering, by using a person's flaws to attract us towards other people and to say, this person is a worthy person who I could potentially love. And why is it that we have an appetite for this experience of sadness? I mean, we can find ourselves sitting in the cinema with tears coming, rolling down our face. Yeah. Why, why are we drawn yeah. to this experience? I mean, a term that's often used, uh, I hate to say, is catharsis, and I know right. this is a term that you don't think is necessarily helpful. Why, why is that? What, how would you understand that, that experience? We walk out, we feel... We've had, it. We've had a real experience ourselves. Yeah, I mean, humans are crazy, right? That's why they like <laughs> crying in front of a screen. We are a strange species. We yes. can definitely agree on um, that much. I mean, if you use the term catharsis to just mean that the expression of sadness can be good, I'm happy enough with that. But catharsis is normally understood in terms of either purging or like venting some kind of negative emotion. And that I entirely reject. First of all, it's based on this you know, ancient medical model of, of bloodletting as a way of curing people. That's, it's not a good model for um, dealing with bad emotions. And it's also drawing on this kind of hydraulic model of emotions where they're like this liquid that fills you up and then you have to kind of expel. Which is a very Freudian idea, this sort of sure. hydraulic sense um, of forces within us, isn't so it? So it's, it's also an unrealistic view of what emotions are. And more, more generally, you know, when people talk about catharsis, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm you know, feeling sad, I'll, I'll go watch a sad film or listen to a sad piece of music. That'll, that'll make me feel well. That'll cure what ails you. Here, have some leeches to go with it. Um, <laughs> it just it's like seems, catharsis, no. It's, it's just an overly artificial way of understanding what's happening when we appreciate sadness in a work of art. If you're trying to understand artworks, you have to understand them not as something you do in order to get a further benefit, but something that in itself is already worthwhile, something that in itself is already able to give you an intensely worthwhile experience. Having said that, I think the expression of sadness in art does have a very significant benefit for us, particularly when you're the one producing it. It's a way in which we don't expel emotion, but um, come to understand our emotions and come to reconcile ourselves. It's all about trying to integrate uh, the dark things that happen to you, the suffering of the world, and to, to see how it does indeed fit into your life and into your picture of how things are. We can't ignore the darkness and, and suffering. We have to be able to look at it straightforwardly in the face, acknowledge it, and nevertheless still say, well, I still think this is a good world. I still think that it's, it's part of a larger pattern that is fundamentally valuable. Let's talk then a bit about the difference between perhaps a valuable expression of this and, and others that might be more dubious. I'm wondering, when we think about that interest in suffering and that feeling of being drawn to empathetically experiencing suffering, can that become a kind of unethical relationship with another person's suffering? Yeah, there is this threat of a kind of voyeuristic sort of indulgence of, you know, witnessing sadness. But I think we have to look to artworks for the way that this is done right. So a good artwork does not trivialise suffering or exploit it to score cheap points. A good artwork takes an ethically serious take on it. It acknowledges it, it doesn't diminish it, it shows us suffering in an honest and responsible light. But nevertheless, 
is able to achieve some kind of reconciliation with it. So I think we very much learn from artworks what the responsible attitude to take towards suffering is. I'm always thinking there we are, in a sense, rehearsing a real experience of another person suffering, perhaps, are we, in that? Uh, yeah, I think there can be a rehearsal art. aspect to it, but often you can take, you know, artworks will depict real-life cases mm. and they'll, they'll find a way to... And in that sense, you're making this point, I think, very powerfully, that that experience of art is an experience. It's not a substitute for another experience. It's not a second-rate form of therapy. It is, in itself, a powerful experience. Yeah, Absolutely. Which I think takes us to that bigger argument that you're making, which is this question of why these aesthetic experiences are so central to us as human beings. Why is it that these aesthetic experiences in some sense make us human or make life worth living? What is the connection there with that wider picture of a well-lived life? Aesthetic value makes the world worthwhile. It's the first line in my book and it's also something that I keep coming back to again and again. But it's only really by means of aesthetic value that we are able to see the world as a good place because the world is morally pretty bad. And it's also often contrary to our prudential or strategic aims. But the world is super abundant in aesthetic value. Aesthetic value applies to literally everything. I mean, it applies to galaxies and other planets Jupiter has nothing to do with moral value or prudential value. You can take this in a kind of theistic way or an atheistic way. I think either way you will still have a sense in which what makes this world a good world is that we are able to value it in this precise way. We have a positive vision of how the world fits together and why also the quintessence of individual concrete things are also intensely valuable as well. I know you have your disagreements with Nahamas, but that notion of being invited in, and as sure. I hear you speaking, and it reminds me too of that idea we see in, in the Socratic dialogues of being drawn to the world. But this feels to me like a, a highly appreciative relationship with the world. Yeah. And an attuned one, an attentive one, perhaps. I mean, I, I'm absolutely on board with that claim. But it's by means of appreciating something from a distance that we then get drawn more closer towards it. The taste of food or the smell of food already has a reward for you prior to your kind of practical consumption of the thing. Similarly, the look of something and it's the attractive features of that draws you towards understanding it more. Or the look of something's power draws you towards uh, that. Or the look of someone's tenderness and their, and their sympathetic features draws you towards a relationship with that person. So I do think aesthetic value in general is kind of orientational in nature, that we are drawn by our pleasure, oh, I, w I want to engage with this thing further. And how important is attention in all of this? How important is that as a factor in an aesthetic relationship with the world? I think this absolutely happens at the conscious level. It's not purely just, a, you know, like an evolutionary, psychological, biological mechanism. We're not programmed by this stuff, but it's where you happen as a conscious imaginative, sensuous being. It's, it's right at the person level that this stuff is happening. I'd like to just come back a little to music and the role of music in this broader understanding of an aesthetic, appreciatively, aesthetically lived life. How important is that to you? I mean, Nietzsche said that without music, life would be a mistake. And I, <laughs> I agree, I think it would be. It has that immediacy and that also that depth that, for me, is the absolute paradigm of 
a rich, deep, fully engaged sense of life. Yeah, I mean, I, part- I participate in music, I listen to music, and it's always kind of the first art that I come to if I want to draw myself out and be more alive to things. I guess. Mm. Tom, I might hand over to you. What would you like to draw out now that we can talk a little bit more about music with the aura its own work? I guess we haven't talked so much about the nature of artistic creativity and what that process involves. That's why it's a great opportunity to have your with us, where we can actually dig into your mind a little bit and find out... Spoken like a true philosopher. What's, you know, <laughs> to tell us a bit about the creative process. I mean, I have some acquaintance with it myself, but you live or die by your creativity. <laughs> like, when you're writing a song, and you come to a decision point, like, okay, do I go onto that chord or this chord or this line? What can you tell us about that process and what's guiding you in that process? Yeah, well, there's a great quote by Herbie Hancock. He said, uh, songwriting is a series of decisions and you have to have the courage to make those decisions. So it's kind of coming to uh, a lot of forks in the road and having to the courage to kind of make that and follow it. So it's a lot of trial and error as well. One thing that does fascinate me in terms of the creative process uh, and that I experience when I write is, you know, you try and get yourself in a state where you're almost not conscious of what you're doing, you know, and that's why a lot of songwriters say, or artists say, um, oh, it was, you know, a gift from, you know, from above or something like that. But whatever you believe, there is, I think, a certain truth that I know for me, the best things I've written, I don't remember them happening. And I think that's just because uh, I was in the state where my mind was sort of somewhere in a blur between consciousness and subconsciousness and it fed me something that I wasn't perhaps consciously aware of in that moment and that's why it was a surprise when it came out. And so I'm fascinated by that and a lot of artists, the challenge is to just to try and get to that state. It's a curious thing that when, you, when you're writing something and you can hit upon a moment or a note or a word, and you can be moved. And I always feel it's a bizarre thing that I can move myself. <laughs> because you think about being moved in the sense of the artistic experience. When I'm creating something, there are moments where I'm moved in a physical way. Like I, I, I sort of, you know, you get the, the tingles or you feel a sense of vulnerability or something like that. I'm fascinated by that. I don't have an answer for that. That does remind me of this notion of the chills, you know, we, this is a particular aesthetic experience too, but it's just such a, I think it really is a beautiful idea that you could be moved by yourself because you're kind of recognising that within you are many selves really, that there's some, right, there's some self that's produced something that another part of you can step back away from. I... Yeah, it's never a simple thing with creativity. The next time you try and sing that, it doesn't do anything to you. And so... Creativity plays games with your minds, you know. Do I trust the first experience I had when I felt this sort of thing that was, you know, put me in another dimension? Or do I trust this now that I've landed and my consciousness is guiding me in a stronger way? Do I trust that? You know, if I write something that moves me multiple times, not beyond the immediate experience of creating it, then I go, I think I'm onto a good thing here. 
I think John Dewey has this lovely saying, I can't quite recall, but it's a, a, like a, an immersion and a reflection mm. that you go this in. rhythm of surrender and reflection. Surrender and reflection, thank you, yeah. We might go to some questions from the audience. Hi there. In different parts of the world, the formation of a composition is made up of what someone can find. It's the sound and the timbre of a piece of wood and, and the, the pitch that comes from that. It might be the materials that one finds on the road. So does that tell us that we simply must have beauty and we create, we compose that out of whatever which is available to us. Yes, I, th I think the drive for beauty and other aesthetic values is universal. I think perhaps not even limited to humans, probably other animals too. But you're absolutely right to say that you have to make tools, you have to make do with the tools you have available, and they are going to lead you in all kinds of different directions. So that does leave room for considerable cultural variation in these things. I don't know if you want to yeah. add to that. It's not just about the things that we can find, it's also the art we've been subjected to. And I think what's interesting, and I, I often think about this, is particularly in songs, why is it that that song moves me? If I'd never heard a piece of music before and someone just played me a C chord on a guitar, I might think that's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. But if someone plays me a C chord now on a guitar, I just go, oh, yeah, it's a C chord on a guitar. Mm -hmm. And so to extrapolate that in a song, I often think we underestimate how actively we're listening to something. When we listen to a song, we are actually in touch with all the songs that we've ever heard before. We're assessing in real time how much this song is original, how much it takes from songs before, how much new ground it's breaking, how it, you know, what, what is it doing in an interesting way? And I'm fascinated by the creative process of listening, not just by the creative process mm. of composing. Mm. Okay. Tom, I feel you'll have things to say about this, this idea of I'm listening. i everything he said, I, I, <laughs> I agree with. We're going off on tangents here. So <laughs> I guess that's no, Hello there. Um, I want to talk a little bit about ugliness. It's interesting about if we go back to the notion of Keats and beauty is truth and truth is beauty. When I was a young man, I never understood that. But now I understand it more and more. I was just wondering whether you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I'm fully on board with Keats there. Beauty, truth, truth is beauty. Um, that puts me somewhat at odds with Nietzsche. He's like, yeah, this truth stuff is not really all it's cracked up to be. Yes, I think there is... Definitely a sense in which to understand something better is to be able to see its beauty all the more clearly. And even when you see something that's kind of on the face of it quite ugly, if you actually take the time with it, it can start to appeal. So, you know, I imagine a scientist who studies tumors. I'm like, oh, this is a really amazing tumor, this. Uh, this thing, oh, what a beauty this one is. Because they understand it, because they're able to see how it works, they're able to see all its functioning. Or, you know, some botanist who looks at some unprepossessing shrub that's just kind of boring for most of us and says, no, but if you think about how it's placed in its wider ecology, it actually is incredibly sophisticated. And they get a sense of beauty from these, these difficult things. Still, some things are just ugly, right? And so... In those cases, you do need, I think, compensatory uh, aesthetic values in operation. So, you know, that can be funny for, for a start. But you, you also have things like punk music, deliberately ugly. 
but powerful, and that's what you, what you enjoy in it. You know, a beat-up old car has a sympathetic value, even if it's, got a kind of, it's lost its kind of sheen of beauty. What you need to embrace everything is all the aesthetic values, not just beauty, because of ugliness. It's the friction. More questions. Quick question. I, you talked a while back about um, the fleeting nature of beauty. I always think about the fleeting nature of happiness, and I wonder how parallel those things are. Because we of, we're often seeking after happiness where so often eludes us, and then suddenly, you know, the light will come in the window at a particular time, and you're children will be sitting there all getting on unusually and um, I don't know there's gorgeous music on the stereo and then it goes you know five minutes later it's gone but it's there and it's and it's beautiful and it's happy and I'm wondering about what you said about that fleeting nature of beauty and how we chase that is that a kind of a way of chasing happiness yeah famously you can't seek happiness or it it undermines it it ruins it I think you can seek meaning I think you can seek love to love something and to hope that it will reciprocate your love, but you're just not in control of that. And so there's, there's something desperately contingent about that. Nevertheless, I think it is a deeply meaningful thing for us to, to be presented with the world and to find it valuable, to be inspired by it, and to try and reflect it back again, to try and take that inspiration and turn it into something that's filtered through your particular sensibilities and your particular expertise and knowledge and desires and values and produce something that you can go, yeah, this is something that's meaningful to me. Um, and maybe you'll get a bit of happiness uh, in that process, but it's never guaranteed. It's always somewhat serendipitous. Well, I'm sure we could go on with questions, but I think it's time to turn back to music in a moment. But before we do that, I'd just like to say thank you all for being here and being such an attentive audience. We so appreciate it. A very big thank you to Tom. And a very big thank you as well to Lior. Thank you so much. And we're going to end with a very fishing piece of music. Yeah, thanks again for having me. I've had a, a really great time. I'm going to finish with uh, an ancient Hebrew hymn that it's become an important piece of music in my life and uh, I thought it was uh, also relevant to tonight because when I was growing up in Israel, there, there was this beautiful tune that I used to hear coming out of the synagogues once a year on the holiest day of the Jewish year, the Day of Atonement, and it was an ancient Hebrew prayer called Avinu Malkeinu. And it always struck me, it stayed with me, Just it, it, there was something haunting and timeless about the melody. And there's a, a beautiful line in it that says, And it means, instill within me a greater sense of compassion so that I can be liberated. And I thought, wow, that's such a beautiful and universal sentiment to be a freer person through being a more compassionate person. So I thought I'd, uh, I'd leave you with this. It, it's it's uh, the seed of a greater musical work that I ended up composing with uh, the amazing Australian composer Nigel Westlake. It's called Compassion, and in the end it's actually a collection of both ancient Hebrew and ancient Arabic texts about the beauty and wisdom of compassion threaded into a song cycle for voice and orchestra. And <clears throat> I thought it would be fitting because also this, we've spoken a lot about 
external beauty and, and this is about compassion which I think is the beauty within. So I'll leave you with Avinu Malkeinu. Avinu Malkeinu Avinu Malkeinu Avinu Malkeinu Chaneinu Ve'aneinu Ki einavanu Avinu Malkeinu Avinu Malkeinu Avinu Malkeinu Chaneinu Ve'aneinu Ki einavanu Ma'asi Asseimanu Tzedakavachesed Asseimanu Tzedakavachesed Vehoshienu Asseimanu Tzedakav ha-chesed Asseimanu Tzedakav ha-chesed Thank you for joining me for this exploration of beauty and the good life through life philosophy. We were fortunate to have Tom and Lior with us for this magical evening. My thanks to them both. Beauty and the Good Life was the penultimate event in our first season of the Sophia Club. I'm delighted to let you know that we will be holding an ongoing series of Sophia Club events in New York, London and Melbourne on a host of richly diverse topics with some truly exciting speakers and artists. We would love to see you at our next evening of live philosophy. To be the first to hear about our upcoming shows, sign up to the Sophia Club newsletter at our website, sophiaclub.co.